Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Nina Kopel. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. A couple of weeks ago, we did a story on the CBD and Southeast light rail. Now, if you haven't heard about what's going on, a new light rail system is currently under development here in Sydney and New South Wales, which will travel through a number of suburbs in the eastern suburbs. There's been massive public outcry when it comes to the light rail, because by building it, more than a thousand mature age trees have either been cut down or will be cut down. And not only has it affected the surrounding environment, But some of these trees had huge historical significance as well. And the reason we're going back to this story is one of the people I spoke to, Louise Borignac, who is a resident in that area. When we spoke, we weren't able to share everything that we talked about on the show. So coming up, you'll hear from Louise and also about those who have been left with essentially nowhere to go since the light rail started development. But up first, I'm putting you under the microscope. Me? Why me? Well, let me rephrase that. You're going to be taken to a world that is only visible by looking through a microscope. And we'll say hi to one of the smallest but most crucial organisms on the planet. I have a mentor called Gustav Hallegraaff who studies phytoplankton in Tasmania and he came to Australia from Europe. His parents, I think, thought he was mad coming over here to study some tiny weeny little microscopic thing that lives in the ocean. It almost brings me to tears that he turned around and he can now go back to his parents and say, I think I'm studying one of the most important organisms on this planet and it could be the thing that saves us. Not only are they incredibly beautiful and intricate and delicate and diverse, I mean, the the shapes are incredible, but they also have the most incredible significance for our global ocean. This is Penelope Ajani from the Plant Functional Biology and Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. As I was speaking to Penelope, she showed me a whole other world. The world of phytoplankton. So this is, these aren't the best pictures, but they just show you the diversity. I mean, they look like spaceships. And mm, dandelions. Uh, that's, yeah, I know that's quite a few people's favourite. Yeah, it looks like a, that one that almost looks like a ceramic. Yeah, oh, I know. See, I want to do fabric print. Someone said buttons. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, yeah. the shapes are, yeah, they're phenomenal. They really are. Penelope has worked as a marine scientist for a number of years and says the world of phytoplankton is the one she loves the most. But it's a world that is often forgotten. It's one of those things that is just really available to someone who looks down the microscope in the first instance, I guess. Yeah, it's just they're so small. So is that why they're overlooked? Yeah, I guess so. But with global warming and, you know, as we understand the ocean more and the intricacies and complexity of the marine ecosystem, I think they've been up until now undervalued and understudied and 
um, hoping that that changes. If I had a $2 coin right here, yeah. how many phytoplankton would there be on that coin? Uh, well, I can't say. Thousands. They range from sort of 10 microns up to 200 microns, and that's a thousandth of a centimetre. Uh, I mean, it depends if it's blooming or not. Again, if you, if you take a bloom sample and you put it under the microscope, there's just millions. Yeah, you can see them and I can count them and I'll tell you that a, a bloom might be 100,000 cells per litre or, or 500,000 cell, cells per litre. I mean, they can go to the incredible numbers quickly within days phytoplankton are just one type of plankton organism among thousands and thousands of different species but phytoplankton are in fact plants so unlike animal species of plankton such as zooplankton they make their own food A lot of them carry out photosynthesis, just as plants do on the land. So they harness the light energy and they produce oxygen, which is 50% of the oxygen we breathe. Mm, That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. So we can refer to that as every second breath you're taking is produced by the phytoplankton of the ocean. And not only that, they're also the first level of the food chain. They're then eaten by zooplankton, which are the tiny little crustaceans and things in the ocean. They're then eaten by the fish and the higher levels in the ocean. So this is, these are at the bottom of the food chain. So they're vitally important to the, the marine ecosystem. But sometimes phytoplankton can have an undesired effect on humans when they algal bloom. Now, not all blooms are bad. Sometimes they can do things like just discolour the water. But Penelope says it can be hard to figure out which algal blooms are which and which phytoplankton are algal blooming because there are just so many different types of phytoplankton. We don't really know why they produce toxins, but if they bloom in large numbers, they can cause problems into our food chain. Because so, they're getting eaten by the bigger by plankton. The and yeah. Oh, right, the it's that whole cycle. Filter, filter the water and accumulate the toxin. So the toxin doesn't hurt the phytoplankton. It probably doesn't hurt the oyster. But by the time it gets to us, it can make us very sick. Records on phytoplankton throughout history, Penelope says, can be quite inconsistent and sometimes very far in between. So figuring out whether they're affected by changing climate conditions can be difficult, but not impossible. So with more extreme weather, so extreme floods and rains, we're going to get a lot more nutrient runoff from the coast and those nutrients entering the waterways can trigger algal blooms. And there is signs around the world that increased nutrients, which is what we call eutrophication, is causing more species to bloom in coastal waters. But there's still, you know, kilometres and kilometres of the ocean that hasn't even been sampled yet. So there's vast areas that we don't even know what's there. The information that marine scientists do have on phytoplankton are now all in one place, in an online database, and it's called the Australian Phytoplankton Database. It's also the main repository for marine data in Australia. 
The database is also publicly available online, so it means any marine researcher like Penelope can sign in to the Australian Ocean Data Network online and have access to a huge amount of data on phytoplankton throughout history, with some of the earliest info dating back to 1844. Often they're just lists and sketches of phytoplankton. Some of these old studies were meticulous in the way they drew them and described them, some of which we know are very characteristic, and so we can link them to the exact same species that we can see today. The database holds more than 3.5 million records of phytoplankton over the past two centuries, and these records provide a crucial insight into how these marine microalgae are changing over time. If I decided to look at one particular species like Noctiluca, I could hop onto that website now, I could download all the Noctiluca data and have a look where it exists around Australia right now. And, you know, possibly in 20 years' time or 50 years' time, we can compare how that's changed. Um, Has it grown in abundance? Has it changed its range around Australia? And also, if not just as important... Having these records compiled together helps us learn more about algal blooms. I've been looking at blooms up in the Hawkesbury River. They occur up there near Barrow waters. Um, We have a couple of toxic species that keep occurring up there and we're trying to use all the nutrient data, the salinity data, the temperature, rainfall, all the different conditions that could maybe cause it to bloom and we're trying to work out under what conditions. And we, you know, we come halfway, I think, to sort of saying, well, under warm conditions in the spring, you know, with this many nutrients, we can probably predict this particular type of species to bloom. But, you know, it's just such a complex system and changing all the time. I mean, you you know, from the ocean, you can wake up beside the ocean and every day it's completely different and doing something different. But at least now, phytoplankton are getting more of the attention they deserve, says Penelope. They fascinate me. And, yeah, they're just, they are. They're the most incredibly beautiful structures. And not everyone gets to see them. That's that's what I find incredibly sad. Penelope Ajani, Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow from the Plant Functional Biology and Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. One of the biggest struggles that our cities face today is the balancing act between sustainable modes of transport and growing populations. A question that we need to address is when do we take transport too far, to the point it's affecting other populations we share the space with? Louise Borognac is a researcher from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS, and also a resident in Randwick, where the current South East light rail system is under development. When the trees were being removed, so when I chained myself to a tree, I actually called WIRES, which is a a voluntary organisation that helps deal with native animals that are injured or need to be relocated. And we actually asked the construction organisation or the light rail consortium if WIRES could be there on hand 
to help relocate animals whose trees were being, whose homes were being destroyed. And they didn't want wires to be there. And, and actually the aftermath of those trees being cut down is that mothers, mother possums and their babies were separated and now babies have to have around-the-clock care. Quite a number of young possums now have to have around-the-clock care with wires volunteers because the trees that they lived in were, were cut down and they were done in such a way that um, trees were being put into this mulcher and there were still like little baby birds and things there. So it, was, it wasn't done in a way um, that the wildlife could have moved away easily and there's been a lot of um, yeah, animal welfare impacts for our native animals as a result of this. Where can these animals go? Well, there's nowhere for them to go. I guess they could go into the park, but probably some possum's already there and has established its territory. So it's it's... Yeah, certainly going to be hard for those animals to re-establish them, play <laughs> themselves, and then people don't want them in their roofs and things like that. So, it's sort of um, what's happening here in terms of the loss of trees is a bit of a microcosm for what's happening all over the state. More and more animals are being pushed out of their homes for housing development. There's huge um, urban growth in in the Sydney basin, and these animals have nowhere to go and soon we're just going to lose more of our biodiversity if we continue to so, build more cities like yeah, more, more if we continue to build out rather than rather than up so if we don't have these green spaces and um, have our green spaces connected then we will um, be losing more and more biodiversity because we're putting more pressure on them through urbanisation, through removal of their habitat, through not them not being able to to move to find mates, to find food in, in areas that they might have been able to do that before. We're just severely impacting uh, their lives and, and their welfare and causing a lot of stress as well. For those wildlife that are vitally important, we need to have um, biodiversity in our urban spaces to teach our children um, the, the heritage that we have. And, and also they provide a range of vital ecological services for us. So by having bees, that's how we pollinate um, our crops to, to get food and, and bats are also providing that services and birds. So we need to have these um, this biodiversity. It's extremely important. You said, so you were mentioning about wires being there during when all of this was going on. Yeah, what, and actually wires asked to, to, to be there, to have some volunteers on hand to be able to reload, relocate animals and, and for that um, stress on those animals to be minimised. But um, the consortium weren't, I guess they, they didn't want people to be there to see what was happening. And so are they doing, what are they doing now given that it's going into construction in terms of animal habitat and animal populations there? Are they doing anything during this stage? Not, not to my knowledge. I mean, they said that they would plant trees at a later stage, but they also constructed that light rail out to Summer Hill and said they were going to replant trees and to my knowledge no trees have been planted, so... There's no real uh, time frame on, on when they're expecting to replant trees or, or where these trees will go. So you can safely assume that it may not happen in the future. Do they just expect people are going to like adopt all these bats and just like, <laughs> like, like, hey, take them into your home. They don't have their own home now, so we're going to have to accommodate them. I don't, I don't know where these animals are going to go. It's just, 
yeah, it's just sad. How do you then, or will you as a resident, like what do you do about that in hindsight and be like, I wasn't alerted to this. What if something else happens down the road? I think this, this, um, and I know various people are actually writing case studies about how, how the decisions could have been made in a way that could have uh, engaged the community more and, yeah, basically there wasn't enough information provided about how this um, how this planning decision would affect people in the local community and there have been significant changes to the planning laws recently. That means less and less the community will have a voice in planning decisions, sort of the way things are going with our current Baird government. You can see the um, objection to the West connects at the moment um, and, and in various other things planning decisions are being made and the communities not being made aware of, of, of the extent of the impacts and, and how they can engage with this. So really we need um, organisations like the Better Planning Network to to, to catalyse people's interest and, and, and help people understand about how these very significant developments are going to affect them. What about, um, you mentioned the West Connects there. Yeah. If we're building a light rail network in an attempt to kind of combat that congestion and maybe discourage people from driving into the city, then on the other hand, we're building the West Connects, or that's in planning mode, which will only encourage more people to drive, yeah. I guess, within those areas. What do you think about that? Well... Yeah, if if you step back and and how you sort of couched it, or how you sort of framed that discussion, it it seems crazy that we're we're moving along one way to kind of increase um, sustainability and get people moving on a more rapid um, public transport network, and then on the other hand, encouraging more people to drive with the West Connects. I know it's sort of servicing different areas of Sydney, but um, we need to the government really needs to be taking a more holistic approach to transport planning and. Yes, and, and thinking about how they can um, make it more accessible, more connected and reduce car dependency in the city. Will you stay in the area that you are now once it's all being developed? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I actually did have a real estate come in and value my property because it's not as beautiful as it once was. It's not as livable there. Um, it'll be obviously very noisy with the, the light rail. So, yeah, I'm sort of considering my options there. But um, certainly the loss of the trees, which was very personally important to me, um, has, has made the area loss, lose a little bit of its greenness and, and um, yeah, certainly the, the beautification of the area is reduced significantly. Louise Boroniak, Senior Research Consultant from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. So Jake, as you know, Ellen, your regular co-host, is gallivanting through Europe. And in the meantime, I'm also hosting another show for her, which she normally does. It's called Think Health. And there's a story I'd like to share with you. Love it. What is it? It's about breast milk. Breast milk. Yeah, it raises these really interesting questions about why we use milk substitutes at all when breast milk is so good for babies. I understand, obviously, not everyone can use breast milk. Some people have to use formula, but... With formula in such high demand, is it a sustainable industry? And more importantly, is it safe? 
It's interesting that you say that because if there's one thing I've learned from doing this show, it's how sustainability ties into other things like industry and economics and even things like following threads down the supply chain, ethical supply chains, and then ultimately how these sorts of things affect us, affect people, because if they affect us, inevitably that's going to have an effect on the planet. Very interesting. Here's Lawrence Gromestron, Technical Officer at the World Health Organization. So we have ample evidence, thousands of research studies that have documented the importance of breastfeeding for a baby's health, for the mother's health, for the economics of the family, for society as a whole. Um, And we know that breastfeeding is just so incredibly important for both health and economics. And so we want to make sure that we have an environment that is conducive to letting mothers make the best decisions for their, their own health and for their baby's health. We know that the marketing of breast milk substitutes often gets in the way of being able to make good, healthy decisions because people are bombarded with contrary information that is often not science-based. In terms of the economics, is that just that families will save money by not buying formula off the shelf? No, that's only one aspect of it. Obviously, there are also savings in terms of the health care costs of taking care of sick children, of sick mothers. Um, But also we see economic impacts because of the intellectual properties. But we know that babies who are breastfed do have higher IQs and have higher earning potential later in life. There are studies that have followed children over a number of years and show that um, those that were breastfed actually get better paying jobs later in life and are more productive. And so those can be turned into economic value uh, through economic modeling of what that would actually be worth to the the globe. Um, There was a study published in The Lancet in at the beginning of this year uh, that actually documented the world economy could save $300 billion per year if we were to get breastfeeding rates up to recommended levels. Wow. So on the other hand, how much money is in the the breastfeeding alternative industry? So it's a huge industry. Uh, The last estimate in 2014 was that the industry itself was worth $44 billion dollars. And that's projected to grow to $70 billion by 2019. So it's not only a huge industry, it's also a very rapidly growing industry, particularly in the lower income parts of the world. Breastfeeding rates have been quite high throughout much of the low income countries, um, but are starting to fall because of this marketing of breast milk substitutes. How has this managed to take place? How have companies effectively sold something that so many professionals are saying is completely unnecessary. Well, marketing is quite effective. Um, And so if you, over a number of many years, put out a message that your product is better, you work with healthcare providers and uh, kind of Bribe might be a strong word, although there certainly are examples of bribery, um, but creating close relationships with uh, healthcare providers so that they start to feel that, well, maybe it's not so important. Uh, maybe breast milk substitutes do almost as good or as good. And so whenever there are any kind of difficulties with breastfeeding, rather than providing the help that a mother needs to get through those difficulties, it's just much easier to say, well, why don't you just buy this can of formula? Um, It's kind of an easy solution to fall back to. And as a result, what we've done is we've actually shaped our society to make it difficult to breastfeed. Um, We certainly don't want to put women in in a position where they feel like they have to do something that is so hard for them. But we've created it where our jobs uh, make it impossible to breastfeed. Women are expected to go back to work much too early. Um, There are not accommodations for them to breastfeed when they do go back to work. Uh, We have this problem with the marketing. We find that healthcare providers themselves even don't even have the education 
on how to how to help women with problems that they have with breastfeeding. And so we've we've created an environment that almost makes it necessary for to have infant formula. Is there a risk though with the campaign that's now taking place to encourage women to return to breastfeeding? Is there a risk that we're going to stigmatize the women who just can't or for whatever reason haven't managed to breastfeed their children? There is some risk to that, and we certainly want to be careful that we don't do those campaigns in a way that would make women feel bad or feel guilty about the decisions that they have to make. And really, many of our campaigns, we try not to emphasize to women what they should do. We really try to emphasize other aspects of what society should do to support women. We actually know that in many, many countries, women are much more really want to breastfeed and want to breastfeed for longer than they're able to do. But we find these barriers that I was talking about earlier that get in her way. And so our campaigns more and more are directed to parliamentarians to change the laws in their societies to be more uh, supportive of breastfeeding. So let's talk about some of those laws. Are there any countries that have gotten it right in terms of protecting women from particularly unhealthy or overwhelming advertisements from breast milk substitute companies? In this report, we actually kind of categorize each country as to how strong their legislation is. And we have a category of essentially comprehensive legislation that covers all of the areas that are recommended by WHO. And there are 39 countries out of the 194 member states of the World Health Assembly, um, kind of essentially all countries uh, around the world. Um, 39 of those countries have what we consider to be comprehensive legislation. Um, Those are countries in Southeast Africa, uh, Southern Asia, and some countries of Latin America. Uh, High-income countries really have not done nearly as well in putting in place that strong legislation. That surprises me. You think that the countries with maybe perhaps more resources available would be doing more to, to counteract the advertisements that are coming through? One would certainly hope, but that is not the reality. Um, I think that in those uh, higher income countries, they tend to have much closer relationships with industry. And so they are more susceptible to the influence of industry, convincing them that, well, we don't need to have such strong protections here. We also know that the rates of breastfeeding are much lower in those high income countries. Um, And so there's not as strong a societal push for strong legislation. There's more of an acceptance of, well, um, we'll just let women do what they want to do um, and uh, not, not, not try to get in their way when they actually don't realize that the advertising itself is getting in the way. So there's been quite an interesting situation in Australia that's got quite a lot of news coverage recently where baby formula and even toddler formula has had to be regulated in numerous supermarkets because it's just been almost bulk bought by by lots of people and it's just flying off the shelves. How is this kind of adding to the hype about the way we consume baby formula in a way that is also potentially damaging? I think we certainly see a situation of kind of a complex economics of infant formula because it is highly valuable. Um, So it's an expensive product, and so there certainly are kind of black markets for it. Um, There are situations in China where um, there's not good regulation of advertising and the the kinds of rules that we, we would like to see in place. And so um, there, there's a, an increasing demand uh, in China, um, particularly as they're moving away from the one-child policy and fertility rates are expected to go up in China. Um, there's a strong push toward increasing the markets uh, for breast milk substitutes in China. 
Um, but the Chinese don't want to buy their own uh, local products because of some uh, fears about the safety of those products. And so what's happened in a number of countries, and I'm sure Australia is one of those, um, is that people are um, taking them off of the shelves in those countries and then exporting them um, sometimes through black markets uh, into China. Um, and so it, it's created a very complex um, economic situation, both above board and below board. It certainly makes it difficult and sometimes makes it difficult then for the local markets to keep up with being able to buy the formula when they want to. Um, and so it has created a, a certain buzz of the value of the product that may be um, inappropriate. Lawrence Grummestron, Technical Officer at the World Health Organization. And this story was originally aired on Think Health, one of our sister shows on 2SCR. So if you're interested in finding out more about that show, head to 2SCR.com forward slash Think Health. They're also available on SoundCloud and iTunes, so you can check out some of their earlier episodes. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your... You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Nina Copel. See you next week.